Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 201 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we celebrated our 200th episode with a special all-audience question show, and it was a lot of fun. We highly recommend the episode and encourage you to let us know your own questions that we can answer on uh, one of our shows. In this episode, we actually are going back to the future and discussing the one legal technology that has always made the most sense for lawyers, at least to me, but never has seemed to be adopted all that widely in its document assembly. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Ma Report, we will indeed be talking about document assembly for lawyers. In our second segment, I'm going to ask Dennis some questions about uh, the recent Finn Legal Tech Conference at Chicago Kent Law School that he attended. And as usual, we will finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, uh, document assembly. Uh, you know, to me, the concept of document assembly has always seemed like the neglected stepchild of legal technology. It's been around for a long time. It's a relatively straightforward technology to implement. It makes a whole lot of sense. But there are still a lot of lawyers who won't even try to take advantage of it. So I think it seems like a topic that never really gets old, which makes it fodder for the podcast. Dennis, what got document assembly back on your radar? Well, I saw a presentation that covered both document assembly and smart contracting as sort of in the new blockchain related concept. And I felt like it was like the new old and the new new. And what was striking to me about the presentation is what they talked about as the hurdles for document assembly and the benefits of document assembly were the same things that we had been talking about for a long time. And then I ran into our friend Ron Stout who, when I said that I had first done document assembly uh, to Will's Trust and Powers of Attorney back in the late 80s, Ron, who really is one of the first ones in, in legal tech, mentioned that he first did document assembly back in 1974. So it has been around a while, and it's I think it's just a, a great approach. I You know, the document assembly application I put together, we used it at the firm for... 10 years while I was there, and I think they might have used it like a, for another 10 years without much changes after that. But I s still see, and, and it was mentioned in this presentation, all this hesitation about moving forward on document assembly. And so people use these other tools that cause more, more problems than I think lawyers actually expect that they do. Well, and I'll ask, I mean, the tools that you used back in your firm in the 80s, do those programs exist anymore? Um, no, because that would have been uh, DOS tools. Uh, so well, that's true, but but, but they didn't early. evolve. They didn't they didn't evolve to Windows, or there wasn't a, an analog 
in the Windows world once everybody moved over to Windows, right? Yeah, so I, I think that you probably would have, the best way to think of those, if you're familiar in the old days of a program called CapSoft is probably what became a standard after a little while. And then then Hotdocs, you know, later became, you know, basically the standard. And, and now you see some more things. And then people tried some things, say, built into Microsoft Office. There's definitely cloud-based things. So there, there's a number of tools out there, but you know, you really expected that everybody in all legal documents would be document assembly by, you know, somewhere about halfway through the 90s. But I think that the reason why, I mean, DOS notwithstanding, I think the reason why you haven't seen sort of this continuous evolution is because nobody's using it, or at least the people, and this is kind of one of the questions that I want us to answer here, which is, why aren't people using it? Why doesn't it make sense? Because I think, as we've talked about, it makes total sense. There's not, I can't think of a reason not to use it unless it's price or complexity. And that, to me, I think is one of the main reasons why the tools that you may have used in the past are nowhere in existence anymore. Now we're dealing with new tools that, once again, not very many firms are using. Yeah, but the old tools really, to me, were not, when I look back on them, it was not that different than doing HTML with a little bit of little bit of scripting, you know, so you sort of had these brackets with codes and you had variables that you put into it, and it took some thinking. I think it's one of those technologies where ultimately part of the issue becomes the technology force, when you go this route, it forces you to think about your processes and think clearly about them and to think about your documents to think clearly about them and, and to really make some decisions about you know what kind of intelligence you have into the application that you do and and to sort of rethink your practice in a lot of ways most important which is that you know if you do document assembly and you're used to the traditional process of drafting documents you are just incredibly slashing the amount of time that you spend on uh, the first draft of a document Okay, so let's take a step back. We kind of dove in headfirst, and we probably should take a step back and not assume that everybody knows what we're talking about when we talk about document assembly. So let's start out with some you know, standard and familiar definitions. So I'll really start out with mine. Uh, I always go, and when we talk about defining things, I'll let everybody peek behind the curtain. I go to Google and I say, what is document assembly? And I take generally the first definition that it gives me um, without a whole lot of thought. And here we go, Wikipedia defines, and they didn't call it document assembly, they call it document automation. And they call it the design of systems and workflows that assist in the creation of electronic documents. These include logic-based systems that use segments of pre-existing text and or data to assemble a new document. And and that is so horribly written that I can't believe that I'm actually describing that. So, I, I mean, I prefer to bring it down to the basics. Document assembly is using an automated process to create law firm documents using pre-configured text and or data without actually having to reinvent the wheel every single time. And so that's my easy, easy way to define it. Dennis, how would you define it beyond what I've talked about? I just make it even easier than that. I mean, that what you're doing is the interface allows 
the user, who I'll call the drafter, to answer a series of questions. And then based on the answers to those questions, we'll provide either additional questions or we'll gather other information. And then as a result of those answers, we'll assemble the document based on what information it has gotten. So it is going to grab, you know, pre-done closets, it's going to fill in variables, it's going to do a, a number of things. But the idea is the the interface for the user just becomes so simple that you're just answering questions and boom, you have a document that comes out at the end. Okay, so sounds simple. Sounds, uh, I mean, we'll talk in a little bit. The, the setup is not simple. The setup can be involved, but it sounds like once you've got it all set up, it's an ideal situation. So why are most lawyers reusing old templates? They're, why are they using old documents that they've used before and just doing a find and replace to find the name of the client and replace it? Why aren't we doing the easier, cleaner, arguably better approach? You know, there are many times I ask myself that same question. I think it comes down to a couple things. So one, there's a lot of upfront time to do document assembly. And I think a lot of lawyers don't want to take that time. It's, you know, it's considered non-billable, right? And so that can become an issue. A lot of people attempt to do sort of like the, the all-inclusive, perfect document and to build everything possible into it. And that's, to me, always been the wrong approach. I mean, I started with durable powers of attorney and I learned a lot from those. I took those learnings onto wills. I took those learnings onto to revocable trust, to irrevocable trust, you know, and, and kind of built on that. Um, but you gotta have support behind that a lot there's a lot of upfront and you also have to have sort of the right documents to do the right agreements or documents to do and then some some standardization already built in and so some of these projects break down as people try to do um, standardization within a firm on documents and you find out everybody has their own you know particular models that they prefer for for whatever reason so that that becomes a piece of it that, so that customization idea. And then I, I think it's just that you get used to doing these things and you say, I, you know, I just take the last one, I mark it up and it works great. And you don't take into account how easy that is to introduce errors and to, you know, have wrong versions and, and get a lot of, lot of things messed up. And so I think that find and replace feels like it's faster and it's something that people have been comfortable with because they've been doing it for years. And it makes it hard for them to ask real tough questions about that and then to say, let's let's move to a different approach. Plus, you know, it cuts down the, the number of billable hours. Well, and I think that there's more that I, I agree with you. It's easy. It's familiar. We have some level of trust that the old document we start with is a good document. So we're not starting with something fresh and new. But I think that where you were headed a minute ago, it, it has to do with the billable hours. I think that once we get in our head that this document, I'm going to charge this amount. This is the standard amount that I charge. I charge this amount and that amount works out to this number of hours. And so I'm used to working that number of hours. And it's not even going to enter my head that if there's a way that I could cut that you know, down by 75 percent, 
that it's going to make it a lot easier. I already have it in my head that this is how long it's going to take. And so it, I don't think it even enters my head that it's too complex to use document assembly software. I think that the lawyers who don't use it either are not aware of it or just don't pay attention to it because they're used to doing one way and that way is comfortable. But you're right. The problems that come to that are, you know, the issue of leading prior client information in the new document. You may take your your document that you had before, you may have highly customized that for a particular client. So it actually has more than what you usually put in that standard form that you use. And then you might forget, leave it in the new document. So, I mean, I think that using old documents, using past work product is, I would say, sloppy at best, malpractice at worst, depending on the type of information that you may leave in that document. Yeah, so there's the whole metadata question, you know, so what metadata is being carried with those documents that you've marked up? And, you know, the story after story of embarrassment. So I think the next approach that people tend to take is they say, well, let's go to standardized templates. So we don't need to do document assembly. We're just going to have these standardized templates and everybody will use those or will always work from those things. And well, because you start to lose version control, they don't get updated as much. They're sort of one size fits all. People start customizing in a lot of ways. And I think before long, you got your back, especially in a, a larger group, to people having their own templates. And I, I don't know what, what you've gained. Um, and so that the template approach um, for a number of reasons, I think causes problems, and then people need to get the right template. You know, is this a, you know, the uh, the landlord favoring or the tenant favoring version, or you know, is it this is what we use for the template for you know certain type of lease, but not another. So I, I think that uh, the template approach is typically the second thing that keeps people from document assembly and, and people, you know, are like, there's some committee working on a template that has all sorts of provisions that, you know, you don't know whether it, uh, I sometimes go back to when I was doing estate planning, what was great was that you never had to negotiate with, with anybody, you know, like the terms were the terms in a, in a will or trust. But when you're negotiating documents, the, the template approach can be, can be really tricky. Well, so I'm going to argue slightly against that, and I'm going to say that a good template approach is still better than no approach at all. It's kind of in the middle there between no approach and document assembly. And I think some of our law practice management friends talk about having your gold standard forms and templates and establishing them. And I, I agree with you, all of the same issues come up if you have issues with version control or if you don't have a good central repository where everybody can get at them, or if you don't have a good naming convention and name them to make sure that everybody understands what the form are, you can fall into all of those traps. I would argue that actually some of those traps also exist in document assembly as well to some extent, but um, I would say that I would rather have a good gold standard form that we try very hard to keep up than no no forms at all. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. So I, I, mean, I think the template approach is definitely the the middle ground uh, but it, I think it causes its you know its own set of issues I, I guess the other thing I, I think about document assembly is that traditionally it's 
sold to people or people think about it on the basis of that it's going to make things faster and cheaper, which we know from the whole history of legal technology is actually a harder sell for a lot of lawyers than anybody ever expects. To me, I always felt that the real value document assembly was uh, of the faster, better, cheaper. It was the better factor that really made document assembly interesting. And so that way, with document assembly, you're pulling in the right provisions. Um, They've been vetted. Uh, You don't have to do as much proofreading. You know, things come together and and you build learning into that. So you can say, you know, for example, when, when I was doing wills, I remember that we, you know, there was a special thing for trust, some special requirements for trust that had S corporations stock. Well, once we realized that we were running into enough uh, uh, of our clients who had S corporation stock and we were, you know, adding the same language, then that just became, we pulled that into the document assembly uh, application and it just became a question. Does the client have S corporation stock? And then those provisions went in where they needed to go into. And then you could also, as part of those questions, you could have sub questions that you could add, you could add comments. So somebody who wasn't new to it, you could explain what S corporation stock was and and why it needed to be treated differently as just part of the, the instructions that went along with that question. So the document assembly tool gave you this great standardization and gave you confidence that you had better quality just in terms of, of proofreading and you had all the provisions that needed to be in that you weren't using some some weird old document or uh, a template that somebody had accidentally removed a a paragraph some so so you had that great consistency and then then it became also a really good training tool at the same time. And and that's what became the big attraction about document assembly to me. And I think that's what sometimes people don't appreciate when they think about document assembly. Well, I mean, you say that people are usually arguing that it's faster and cheaper. I'm going to make a money argument, but it's not either about, well, I mean, it's going to, it's related to faster, but it's certainly not about cheaper. It's about making more money. It's about realizing more money. I would go back to my earlier example. If there's a, a certain document that you typically charge, let's say you charge $2,000 to prepare a document or a set of documents, and it usually takes you 10 hours to create those documents, your realization rate is $200 an hour. Whereas with document assembly, if it only takes you an hour and a half to do that, then your realization rate has just multiplied by five. You're up well over a thousand dollars an hour to get that stuff done. And so I, I would think that would be the seller. I mean, it's I agree with you that document assembly is making your documents better. But I mean, I've always thought that the money argument is how do I make more money or how do I be more effective about the money that I make? And to me, that's the argument for document assembly. Right, and that's why I think you see a lot of it at the solo, especially at the at the solo end of the market, because people are more willing to do flat fees. They don't have, I mean, it's your own business, so you don't have like the same, you know, brutal minimum billable hour requirements. You know, where you would say, oh my, if this is going to cut my billable hours, that's a problem. You see, people are more innovative, so I, I think that. You know, a lot of clients think that lawyers use document assembly all the time. They just think that we, you know, press a button and the document comes out. And so if you were able to do something, you say your same thing. I have the set of documents that come out for a new corporation and I charge $2,000 for the documents. 
what if I give those documents away for free and sell a subscription service where people can call me, they have annual tune-up of their corporate uh, documents and minutes and, and those sort of things, and then they can call with any questions they have, and I charge them you know, $3,000 a year for that then I actually earn more money off of that client. And because I have a regular set of calls, then possibly I, they are reminded that uh, they have other work I can do as, as well. And so I think the document assembly is both a technology and as you're, I agree, totally convoluted definition you started with, actually uh, because what it does to force you to look at processes can be extraordinarily helpful to you. I think we both agree on pretty much all of these things about document assembly. Let me take, you know, a minute or two to talk about what's out there and what you should look at. This is this segment is probably less about um, the practical advice on what tools to use, but I wanted to at least talk about it a little bit. I mean, we talked to some extent about the better than nothing practice of having gold standard forms and templates. I'll go one step maybe slightly up from that, or maybe it's slightly below that. You know, I like to talk about um, in my job saying, let's start with tools you already have, tools you already use. And I know a lot of law practice management experts also talk about that as well. And frankly, just looking at Microsoft Word and using the quick parts feature in Microsoft Word, you can basically create your own document assembly within Word. It's not, uh, it's a little primitive. It's not uh, as smart as some of the other tools that Dennis has talked about. And then I'm going to mention by name here in a minute, but you can certainly put pre-canned language into the quick parts and easily assemble a document uh, in much faster time uh, using the quick parts feature in Microsoft Word. There are a number of document assembly tools that are out there. I'm really only going to mention three or four of them. Um, Hotdocs has been the the big 800-pound uh, gorilla in the room. They've been around forever. They have a good tool. Not sure exactly what the pricing is. Probably not very cheap for solo and small firm lawyers to use, but it's something that lawyers are, are using and using a lot. Uh, the tool that I see being uh, used a lot more often these days and kind of a strong contender recently to uh, to Hot Dogs is the Form Tool or Doxara is their other tool that they have, um, which um, creates smart documents is what they call them, uh, or smart forms. And uh, they have an interesting way of, of putting together information. Pythagoras is another tool that's out there that's been out there actually for a while now um, that is, I think, well regarded among lawyers. I, I would say that for those of you who have law practice management software, those tools may be out there. Um, some of the law practice management suites offer some form of document assembly. I'll admit I've never used them, but I've got to believe that the careful coding and and algorithms and uh, you know almost artificial intelligence-like way that some of these other programs co go about creating documents is something that these law practice management tools just don't have. So I think that any document assembly that you get with a law practice management suite, like a cloud tool, would be more basic and wouldn't be as full-featured as some of these others. So those are just some 
some of the options that you have. The great thing about these tools is that you're not really using their templates. They don't necessarily, I guess they come with some templates that you could use, but you're actually using your templates. And, and, and that's really where a lot of the lawyers kind of fall down on it is you're, you're doing some work on the front end to get those templates customized. But you know, once they're uploaded into the system, once you have them ready to go, you're set. And creating those documents is really, like we've mentioned, a matter of just answering questions and pressing print. And maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but it's pretty simple. Yeah, I, for me, I, I look always look at a couple of things, and so so one thing is you're always looking for something that where there's a lot of volume, and it's something where it makes sense to push it down to a paralegal or or, or you know an associate level, especially a paralegal level, uh, to at least at least do the first drafts, you know, enter the information. So volume, I think starting simply with documents that make, you know, that are, are simple to do, small number of variables, uh, very repeatable, that gets you to learn how to use the system. And, you know, whether you need to go to, and, and you may start simply and then move up to a more elaborate tool. So I think a lot of people buy hot docs and it just it overwhelms them. You know, so you might look like a web-based tool like an XRE or, or some of the tools that Tom named. Uh, the other thing is that I think that a lot of people who go into document assembly really would like to jump to the end at the beginning. So they would love to have the document assembly application all set up and ready to go so that paralegals and others can generate documents. But they would also like the paralegals and others to set up the, the application from the beginning. And that's that's actually the place where it makes you have to have the lawyer involved to make good decisions because you can can simplify documents, you can do all sorts of things, improve processes, and, and make judgment calls on these things. And so I think that sometimes document assembly projects really get slowed down because the lawyer sees that it's going to require a lot more time than, than they ever expected. So I have a thought on that, which is kind of interesting to me because you have a lot of students in law schools really kind of focused on technology and, and legal technology. And it seems to me that you could bring in a law student for a summer internship and, and make the, the project for the summer or one of their projects, a document assembly, putting that all together. So that gives you somebody who has some legal skills, at least a law school level, who can kind of help with that and learn to do the right questions and get involved in the project with the time and the enthusiasm that you as a busy practicing lawyer might not have. And and Tom alluded to this other thing that I think is really cool about document assembly is it's, I wouldn't, it's not Artificial intelligence, I mean, there's some ways that you can use machine learning and other tools, I think, potentially to draft documents, but but your experience is going to feel like artificial intelligence. You answer some questions, and then boom, you have a document that in some cases can be ready to go, or at worst, a really nice first draft, and that's the cool thing about document assembly. Yeah, so let's wrap this up. I think that we've kind of covered most of the angles about document assembly today. I, I do want to say one thing. I was As I was researching this, it occurred to me that maybe the future for document assembly, something that lawyers probably are even less prepared to do than adopt document assembly, is what I would see to be the next step, which is uh, you know becoming your own legal Zoom and creating client-facing document assembly, giving your clients the templates that they can fill out themselves, they can answer the questions, 
and they're presented with some documents. Why not join the legal Zooms and compete against them and charge a small fee so that a client can get a, a legally correct document that they can use on their own? I think that's an interesting way to look at the future of document assembly. I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's going to be a great option for competing with the legal Zooms of this world. I think you're right, and that data entry thing is is key because I will say one thing, that the odds that your client is going to type his or her name correctly are much higher than your, you <laughs> or somebody at your office are going to get it spelled correctly every time. That's true. That's it for Document Assembly. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy. And I'm Tom Mile. We've got a number for a special voicemail box for you to leave audio questions or to make suggestions for topics. That number is 720-441-6820. I'll say it again. That's 720-441-6820. We'd love to use your questions in our B segment in a future episode. Uh, for this episode, however, I'm actually going to turn the microphone on Dennis. I'm going to ask him about the recent Finn Legal Tech Conference he attended and, and spoke at at Chicago Kent Law School. Um, Dennis, my first question really should be, aren't you attending a lot of conferences lately? But actually, I'm going to start with this one. Can you tell us exactly what Finn Legal Tech is? Well, you know, I, I actually struggled throughout the day trying to figure out what it was, but I, I think that I really call it a legal innovation conference with a focus on quantitative tools and the business of law. So there's a financial, legal, innovation, and technology. And it was a, it was a great conference because it, it ran the whole range from, you know, from lean uh, approaches, lean management approaches to new technologies like blockchain and uh, smart contracts uh, to new old technologies like document assembly. Lots of different people doing very cool things, uh, some access to justice, some some really uh, leading thinkers in, in where the practice of, of law is going. So I think, and it comes, I'd say more of a business approach, but a, a combined business and technology approach with a focus on evidence-based decision-making, data-driven decisions, and really going into looking at the data and not just going by the seat of the pants feel that lawyers are, are really notorious for when looking at what might or might not work in their practices. Well, I have to say, when I looked at the agenda and looked at all the sessions, my poor liberal arts brain just kind of exploded because I just didn't under really understand um, a lot of the topics that they talked about. And I think you've helped describe it a little bit there. But I think that from what I could tell and from what you told me, the conference used um, maybe a, a kind of a TED Talks format to introduce the and have the speakers talk to the audience. How did that uh, work out? You know, I really like that. I mean, it's tough, Tom, as you know, as a speaker, when you, you're told that you only have 10 minutes or 15, in this case, it was 15 minutes, because uh, it 
goes by really fast. But I think what it made was uh, like the TED Talks themselves that you see, a lot of people really personalized things and kind of picked a few key issues. So like I was talking about lawyering in the, the platform era. So I was talking about platforms and how they work together and how um, you can move from being like the transactional lawyer to a product lawyer to a lawyer for who considers the platforms of the whole ecosystem. And that's changing the approach. And that applies to Internet of Things and, and other, you know, other stuff that's going on. But you learned about a lot of really interesting products. We had people uh, like Eddie Hartman of, of LegalZoom, Julian Hadfield, who just wrote a, a book about uh, rules for, uh, I wish I had the name of it in front of me, but uh, rules for a, a flat world, uh, which is, again, a notion of platforms and focusing on the, the bottom of the pyramid and, and trying new things in access to justice. And then there's stuff just looking at you know what we were learning from data and the, you know, machine learning, there's some talk of AI, but it was like a great, uh, quick introduction on a lot of topics, really great speakers. And I actually grew to like the approach uh, because it's one of those things where you're going like, well, it's really interesting. And it gives me something to think about, or if it's not that interesting or not really up my alley, it's only 15 minutes. Well, Dennis, that sounds great. I can't wait till the next podcast where I can ask you questions about the next legal technology conference you're going to attend. This is probably my turn to ask you about uh, your next uh, legal technology conference. I'm sure you have something coming up one of these days. So now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So this would not be a Tom Mile parting shot without something about speakers or headphones or something like that. And I will not disappoint you again. I have been trying out a new set of, I'm trying to find kind of the nirvana in wireless headphones. I'm not, since I'm not in the world of Apple, the Apple EarPods are not my style. I still think they look a little weird to me. They're just not what I want. So I've been looking for something that's pure Bluetooth that you can use no matter what platform you're on. And I have lately been trying out the Bose SoundSport free wireless headphones. Um, they're just little earbuds that they pop in. They have no wires between them, so they are truly wireless. I have in the past talked about using um, the Bragi headphones that I've really liked. Well, I now have new favorite wireless headphones. The Bose really to give terrific sound, and the best part is there's no connection problems. I, the Braggies um, didn't always have the best connection. Sometimes it broke. Sometimes I had to reconnect. The minute that I hit the button on the Bose, they turn on. It really does work well. Um, if I had any complaints about it, it would be, one, a little bit pricey. It's a, I think, I forget how much. It's over $200 for them. It's a little pricey, but that's a Bose for you, so if you're used to buying Bose, and that's what you get. And the other one is, they're a little bit big. They look a little strange sticking out of my ears, but I would argue they look no more strange than somebody wearing AirPods. So uh, the Bose SoundSport free wireless, definitely thumbs up for me. Are those noise canceling? They do not do noise canceling. No, they don't do that. There are other wireless ones that will do noise canceling. These don't do that. And just as no, the parting chats wouldn't be complete without time talking about some audio speaker or headphone. It wouldn't be complete if I was, wasn't going way out on the edge of, of new technology trends. And so Gartner has uh, released their top 10 strategic technology trends for 2018. 
And I don't know that there's, if you're in this area, that there are any great surprises, but I think it's one of those things I recommend to people because this is what's coming and this is what a lot of people are thinking about and it, it will give you a sense of how things might go. So things like AI, uh, intelligence things, uh, analytics, conversational platforms, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, and immersive experiences, they call it blockchain, of course, and something uh, called continuous adaptive risk and trust, which I actually think is something that that uh, lawyers will run into over the next few years as people look at risk and risk management and the whole notion of, of trust and identity and look for new ways to handle those issues that may have impact on the traditional legal approaches. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com. You can find us on LinkedIn. Um, Or again, our number for voicemail questions is 720-441-6. 6820. That's 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.